You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 111 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. This week, David is doing research on just how quickly you can run out of money driving a diesel bus across the country, not only reading about it, but experiencing it for himself. For this week's episode, we are joined by Evan Albright, who is a journalist that has authored two books, The Man Who Owned a Wonder of the World and Cape Cod Confidential. If you've been listening to our show for a while now, you can probably guess which one of these books we'll be covering today. Evan, it is such a pleasure having you on this evening. How are you doing? I am doing excellent. Thank you so much. You gentlemen doing well? As well as I can be. Yeah, we'll go with that. I think that sounds appropriate. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) big changes happening. So Evan, we ran into you via the interwebs from Dr. David Anderson, who was on episode 110. And so we're continuing this theme of talking about Chichen Itza, the Maya world, but you're coming in it from a different perspective as an author, a journalist, the work that you've done um, and the research that you've conducted on your book, The Man Who Owned a Wonder of the World, The Gringo History of Mexico's Chichen Itza. So what inspired you to pursue that book? Uh, it was a madman's quest. I will just tell you from the very beginning. It was it was madness on my part, and I knew it was going to be madness. How I came across the story was I was working on Cape Cod for a series of weekly newspapers. And if you work for weekly newspapers and you're an editor, one of the things you need to do is you have to fill the space between the ads and the top of the page. So I was looking for something that would be evergreen that I could put into the space that that would fill it at any given time. So I could just haul it in and drag it in. And I came up with this idea. Why not do a history of crime? Now, I live on Cape Cod. That's where those stories were pulled. And so what I did was I did some research, went to the local library, went through all the newspapers going back to the 1800s, brought myself up to the present. And and, and I would scan the newspapers. And when I found something interesting, I would just hit copy and take it home. Didn't even bother to read it if the headline was interesting. And I went all the way back to the 1600s in some cases for some of these stories. So it was all the way from the pilgrims to the present. Then I would get back to my office, I'd sort them, and I'd actually read them. And I came across this one story. And I said, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to put this aside. And it was a, a story from 1926 the uh, Boston Globe had interviewed a gentleman by the name of Edward Herbert Thompson, who was living on Cape Cod at the time. And Edward Thompson had been accused by the Mexican government of stealing a million pesos worth of artifacts from something that I, I didn't know what it was. It was called the uh, the Dead City of Chichen Itza. I'd never heard of it. I mean, I'm sure I probably learned about it in school, but it, it didn't ring any kind of bell. And I thought, how could you steal a million pesos, which at that time was $500,000? How could you steal that many artifacts? And then it said that the Mexican government, in uh, retribution for this, they uh, seized Thompson's plantation, which was called the Hacienda Chichen, which was right next to Chichen Itza. 
So I found this story and my rule at the time was I would write these little quick stories that would go in the newspaper. But if it took more than four hours to do research, I set it aside for something else. I put that story aside for 10 years. And then uh, I, I was out of work at one point. I'm a writer by trade and uh, I had just been laid off. But I used to work for Elsevier Publishing, by the way. So you scientific folks know that. So I said, you know, I guess I could write a couple magazine stories. Let me dip into this Chichen story. Now, I had done this 10 years before, and that consumed 10 years of my life, this other story that I had found. So I, But I said, you know, I think I can knock this off in a couple of weeks. So I dug into it, and I immediately answered the question, how could somebody steal a million pesos worth of artifacts from a Maya archaeological site that I found out was the most famous one in all of Yucatan and at the time one of the most visited sites on the planet, although at the time it was kind of in the Thule's. But uh, I, I learned that Thompson did not own the hacienda next to Chichen Itza. Edward Herbert Thompson, an American owned Chichen Itza. That was his property. The hacienda included all the ruins of Chichen Itza. Now, he had removed these artifacts from the Cenote Sagrado, which is a sink well on the property. And uh, into this, the Maya would toss sacrifices of, in addition to people, they would also put in uh, various, you know, gold, jade, pottery, Etc. Yeah, so that's the sacred cenote that's like closed today, but that's like the primary one that's at Chichen. That is correct. So Thompson brought in a dredge and dredged the cenote sagrado, and those artifacts, which I found out filled two rooms, two and a half rooms at the Peabody Museum at Harvard, which is where they ended up. I go, this is a huge story. Uh, there's no way you can ship two rooms full of artifacts without somebody knowing about it. And then I later found out that uh, Thompson had actually won his case before the Supreme Court of Mexico. Spoiler. So for those people who want to read my book, but he won the case. And indeed, it was uh, decided that he had stolen nothing. So I knew that this was a huge story. How did he own the joint? Like what? When did he purchase the property? Like what? What's the backstory to this American gringo like owning it? How'd that happen? So the, uh, there are all sorts of historical tropes about Edward Thompson and him buying Chichen. But uh, I actually broke down and did the research. And to me, it was uh, because that was my question is how indeed could a gringo buy the, by this site, which was even well known at the time that he bought it, which was 1894. And uh, the, the story is that he uh, he tricked or conned his way into buying it for 200 pesos. Now, this is, you know, what? that's that's a story. <laughs> So when I would travel to Yucatan, I would uh, I, I got to know a lot of Yucatecos. And if there's one thing I learned, nobody's going to cheat them out of anything. They are a pretty uh, shrewd uh, group of people down there, and particularly the people who were in the upper caste, the Casta Divina, the very rich people, the Hacendados. So what I found out was actually that purchase was orchestrated by, at that time, the Bishop of Yucatan. 
And the bishop wanted to make sure that this property did not fall into the hands of someone who wouldn't be able to properly care for it. So he very carefully shepherded it through uh, a couple of members of the Costa Divina, the Hacendado class, through them to Edward Thompson. And so the purchase price, I, I, I can't remember what it was. It was, you know, a few hundred pesos or something like that. But in typical Yucatecan style, uh, something that kind of went uh, a practice that continued almost to today is there's the price that you tell the government and then there's the price that gets paid. Now, at that time, Chichen was considered abandoned land, and the uh, president of Mexico and the government of Mexico was trying to get this abandoned land sold and under somebody's ownership so that it would become tax-generating property. So in this case, the Bishop of Yucatan was looking out for Chichen and made sure it went to Thompson, who uh, already was doing archaeological research in Yucatan. I mean, that's that's really interesting. I guess technically it was abandoned, if we wanted to think about it like in archaeology terms. You know, you could, you could consider it abandoned land, but uh, so it becomes this like mix with like the church, the government, trying to avoid taxes. And then it, it ultimately gets funneled to this this Thompson guy. What kind of happens when he takes control of that and actually owns the parcel of land? Right. So, uh, as I said, one of the things that he did was dredge the cenote sagrado. That is actually bring in a giant bucket, uh, dredge bucket. Uh, what do they call it? Orange peel dredge. Had it imported from his home in Massachusetts and had it shipped to uh, Zitas, which is the community several kilometers away. And then it was carried overland. This thing must have weighed tons, carried overland to Chichen, where it was set up by the Cenote Sagrado. And then from 1904 to 1911, he began dredging. Now, this was paid for by two benefactors of the Peabody Museum at Harvard University. They wanted to see if indeed the legend was true, the legend that had been related by uh, Bishop Diego de Landa back in 1566, who wrote that if there was gold in this country, if there were riches in this country, because Yucatan doesn't have any natural resources like gold or jade or anything like that, it's it's just a limestone plain. If, it, if those things existed, they would be in that cenote sagrado. Thompson began dredging in 1904 and uh, proved the legends true. And uh, most of what he found, he shipped up to uh, the Peabody Museum at Harvard. He had shipped in crates, except for the gold and the jade. There were some very valuable artifacts and those he uh, smuggled through various intermediaries. You know, the argument that I make, and I'm probably wrong, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. One of the reasons that he smuggled them that uh, in a rather surreptitious way was that getting anything through customs and uh, getting it through customs where customs wouldn't either seize it or divert it, or I'm going to even say they were famous for stealing, what you had to do then was to uh, be somewhat tricky about it. Now, what he did was completely wrong and uh, I know is completely frowned upon by the archaeological community today, as, as well as the legal community. And, but uh, in the end, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, it was a violation of law and uh, required a 500 peso fine, which uh, was paid by the next owner 
of Chichen Itza. That was the Barbachano family. How large was this property? Uh, You know, as I was trying to answer that, I think it's 600 hectares, I believe, maybe 800 hectares. Um, and a hectare is two and a half acres. So uh, it's it's quite large. But Chichen is actually far larger than that. And it is a network of little villages that go yeah. all around there. But it's um, almost 15,000 acres or 1,500, sorry. Yeah, that's a, that's. I think that's right. And I'm talking yeah. off the top of my head, unfortunately. So uh, but it's, it, it's, it's large huge. for, you know, 400 pesos. You know, that's that's a large I could only dream of acquiring that much property for 200 American dollars. Yeah, it's like not going to happen. Didn't happen. No, no, not anymore. Yeah. No, 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 no. Oh, it didn't uh, even happen back then. I'm just telling you, he, he didn't acquire <laughs> it for 200 acres, 200 pesos. So. <laughs> There's some other other he he dealt with he was giving money in other places that is not maybe recognized yeah. on the books essentially. Yeah, I right. suspect that's probably the case. I you know somebody made some money somewhere. Oh, had absolutely. to had to. So who's this next guy that owns the property? Why was it given up in the first place? Well, the Mexican government, as I said, had seized the property in 1926. What prompted them to take control of the property was that a Edward Thompson had kept the secret if you want to call it that, the secret, and I'm doing air quotes here, the secret of the dredging of the Cenote Sagrado for something like 20 years. You get the feeling he kind of decided he wanted to be famous. So he revealed it in 1923 to a New York Times reporter, a woman by the name of Alma Reed. And that was published in the New York Times, which was the first time you had a major newspaper write about the finds in the Cenote Sagrado. By the way, nothing happened. No action by the Mexican government other than a delegation from Mexico went up to the Peabody Museum, took a look at the artifacts and went, huh, guess you got the artifacts. Three years later, however, a book was written. There was also a change of government in Mexico. Three years later, a book, a biography of Edward Thompson was written by a gentleman by the name of T.A. Willard. And what uh, Willard mentioned uh, rather prominently was that the uh, treasure was valuable and that it included gold. And the second that that came out, all of a sudden, that's when all hell broke loose for Edward Thompson. Fortunately, at the time, or unfortunately, as far as Mexico is concerned, he was out of the country. And at that point, he could not return to Mexico. And uh, Mexico seized the Hacienda Chichen, as I mentioned before. Oh, so you asked me about the the family that got it afterwards. I'm sorry. Yes. That's a great that's a great story. And probably is the second reason I decided to do this book. So uh, I was talking with an archaeologist who had been at Chichen, and uh, we were just kind of chatting. And I was telling him about how Edward Thompson had owned Chichen. And uh, he's like, you know, how funny you mentioned that, because I was just down in Yucatan and uh, somebody there was some guy named Barbachano who said he owned Chichen and he was in the news. And I thought, how odd. So this is around 2004, I find this out, and I do some research online. The internet, you know, wasn't quite the internet as robust as we had today. So I found this rather HTML written code story that was in a newspaper. 
and I manipulated it and it's in Spanish. And at that time, I barely could read any Spanish at all for this project. I really had to teach myself to read Spanish, but I'm reading it. And I'm sort of translating it word by word. And it appears to be that this person by the name of Fernando Barbachano Gomez Rule was claiming to be the owner of Chichen Itza. So one of the things that I did that, uh, by the way, a lot of people who write about this don't bother to do, and I don't know why, because it's very easy, is I found an email address for Fernando Barbachano Gomez Rule, and I sent him an email. And I said, are you the owner of Chichen? And he, he replied to me minutes, within I, I, maybe a few hours after I had sent the email. And he said, and this is in my book, it's actually at the beginning, he goes, uh, basically, sadly, he's not the owner of Chichen because he gave it to his grandson a few months before, before I sent this email. And uh, yes, his family has owned it since 1944. And then he went on a rant about archaeologists and the government and uh, everybody else who was making his life at that time a living hell because they were trying to take Chichen away from his family. And that was something that pretty much was ongoing at that time and all the way through the writing of my book was the attempt by the government and by uh, various business people to try and strip Chichen from the Barbachano family. It's like yeah. what every Nebraska farmer I run into thinks is what's going to happen to their property if archaeologists <laughs> come on it, which is like, dude, it's not true. But in this case, like uh, this guy has some merit. But, uh, you know, for being a wonder of the world, one might, uh, you know, be apologized for saying maybe it shouldn't be owned by one family. But um, on that note, we'll be right back with Evan on episode uh, 111. Stay tuned for these sweet, sweet advertisements by our uh, lord and ruler, Chris Webster. Welcome back to Alive and Ruins podcast, episode 111. I know that you want it to be the Dirt podcast, but you're stuck at Alive and Ruins. Keep listening to us. So we wanted to, a lot of what like prompted this discussion, starting with David Anderson and ultimately finishing here with Evan, is that Carlton went down to Mexico you know, did the tourist thing, did the Cancun thing. He swam with turtles. Did the cartel <laughs> thing, apparently, after getting shot at the airport. You know, he really experienced, like, at least the diversity of, like, experiences you can get in the Yucatan Peninsula. At least at least partly some of them, you know, mostly tourists and whatnot. But, yeah, part of that, we just wanted to have this discussion because your experience there was interesting as coming from an academic viewpoint and seeing some of these just the way that that people talk about Chichen on the ground, like physically there. So, Carlton, do you mind recapping what you uh, what you experienced there? Yeah, absolutely. So, I've never done like the tourism bus thing ever. I, I've never done that. But since we were in Cancun for Playa del Carmen for a week, we figured we'd get out of the resort to go see some of these sites. So, we booked this tour. That would visit Chichen Itza first, then it went to the cenote where we could swim, followed by this Maya artisanal workshop, workshop air quotes, and uh, where you could also get like local tacos and stuff. It was like our lunch is part of the deal. They were delicious. And then we finished, rounded out the trip at a colonial city. I forget the name of it, but it has a lot of Spanish influence. Really cool place. 
of course, me and my partner at the time wanted to go visit Chichen because it's a wonder of the world. It has huge significance in our field. We're not myotologists. We wanted to see it because we've heard so much about it. On the bus ride there, it was about two and a half hours from Playa to get there. On the bus, we had a tour guide who was like trying to explain things about the site. And that already kind of set me like what's going on here. Cause he was talking about like Talash Collins and some of these groups that were later talking about how the Maya was like really, 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 really loose with dates of Chichen and the Maya, which was already like, wait a second. He kept conflating like, well, Chichen, it says like 5,000 or something years old. And so he kept using like the Maya and Chichen interchangeably, which was already kind of weird. We get to the site I'm like really excited to learn about the archaeology because I'm an idiot, but we weren't really talking about the archaeology. We would do like this tour around where he would like bring us to a building and we wouldn't know about the age of the building, the phases of construction. It was like this building is the observatory and to be like Mayans used to make these like he held up basically this like glass um, obsidian lens that was polished, right? And be like, and you know, Mayans were so good that they developed these and they could look at the sun. And I'm like, you can't make polished fucking obsidian. Like, that's impossible without water. Like, they, there's no way they nap this. And like, I'm already like, what's going on? He knew a lot about astrology and say things like the Maya weren't military, military, militaristic, like they didn't have armies. But then we went by a barracks later. He's like, this is where all the soldiers lived. And I was like, wait, I thought you said they weren't militaristic. You know, so I didn't learn about when these things were excavated, what they found. It was like a tour of these buildings. And like, I had no context to them. There were no plaques around Chichen Itza either. There were no like signs walkways they had maps but they were like gone like i think i took a photo and sent it to the boys and i was like i don't know where i am and it was just dated and kind of like what was being presented there but what was heavily present is on all the walkways were you know stands selling chinese crap like everywhere and the tour guide nice dude um but he would one thing i think i brought up in the last episode like my partner i got frustrated And I didn't want him asking me any questions like this is I'm not getting what I'm here for. I was like in a sour mood. But my partner was just like, I'm just going to see what kind of shit comes out of his mouth. So she's like, how did they carve the stones? And he's like, well, they used to take rope and glue obsidian. And then they would like saw stones and make them perfect. And I'm like, she's just pushing those buttons. She was just and I I was bugging her. I was like, why are you asking these? Because I was in that tone. I'm like, why are you asking these questions? You know, they're not true. And she's like, I know. I just want to see what he says. Like, this is amazing (laughs) that he's just coming up with this. And so. When we get to, I think, one of the pyramid, the, the Grand Pyramid, you know, the, the Citadel, and he's talking about rulers and someone asked about like, you know, didn't, what about sacrifices? And he's like, oh, the Maya didn't sacrifice anyone. That's a myth. The worst they would do is they'd go capture someone's queen, bring her back, humiliate her, and then like let her go. And we were like, what? Interesting. But what? why is there a barracks here? He's like, well, they didn't have soldiers, but that's the barracks where the soldiers lived. And I was like, okay. And then I think the last time I mentioned the ball court that Dr. Anderson said he wasn't necessarily right, but he wasn't necessarily wrong that maybe that ball court was more ceremonial. We actually don't know what the hell the hoops are for. In that context, that made sense. But he's at the time, he's like, oh, this wasn't a ball court, period. We didn't, you know, the Mayas didn't play ball. They didn't know what balls were. And it was just like this crazy... I mean, the one thing we did, we went in there and we yelled tequila at the wall to hear it, you know, echo. Like that was the purpose of us going in that space, not to learn about the Maya ballgame or anything. So I didn't get that. I was in a bus full of a bunch of American tourists from America who have no archaeological background. I went as an archaeologist 
on a on a gringo tour right like i should have known better it was my first time doing it but in contrast to that we went to tulum uh, the next day and that tour guide was phenomenal like we told him we were archaeologists and like he was like oh what do you guys want to know and we would like actually have really good dialogue with him and he'd be looking up sources with us and we'd be going through things and he would like really geared that experience for us now tulum was a seven person minivan with a wedding party and then you know chichen itza was like a tour bus with like 50 people, like the, the different experiences, but can you say one's a bat- bachelorette party and the other was a, you know, like a real vacation? I guess so. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like an appropriate, it, it was, it, they were just very different experiences. But what I, what I kept left wanting was like, what really got to me is like, move aside the fact that they didn't talk about the archeology. span What I, it was some of the facts air quotes that he'd bring up. And I was like, where is this coming from? And why is this, how is this allowed? Because these folks are supposed to be vetted. They're part of a company. They're all private contractors. What's the process like for getting a tour guide? And because does that mean they're all variable? Does it just depend on the tour guide that you got? Because when the first guy going to Chichen, I kept answering all of his questions. He's like, what are the four domesticates? And I was like, beans, corn, squash. And, you know, and he's like, how do you know that? And I was like, oh, I'm an archaeologist. And he's like, stop answering questions. You're done. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. You know, like, and so I was like, this is okay. So does it just depend? Like maybe I should have done like a test and like gone on that tour every day and like graded the tour guides, but like, it's not my heritage and it's not my country. And to be fair, I've gone through plenty of museums and sites where a docent is talking out of their ass. Like it's not just specific to Chichen, but I put Chichen on a pedestal because it's a UNESCO world heritage site. You know, it's a wonder of the world. So my expectations for the information that I was paying to receive was much higher than going to, you know, Gettysburg. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, that was that. I don't know where the guy got that information. And I'm just going to be honest. I've heard pretty much everything, but uh, obsidian saws, that's a new one on me. That's, first of all, not a lot of obsidian in uh, Yucatan, right? Now, volcanoes, not around. So uh, you would have had to import something like that just to, so, well, anyway. Uh, you had a bad tour, I, you know, and, and again, no offense to the guy, because I, I think kind of the primary lesson, one of the things I learned early on, and I have uh, a, a few friends who are guides at Chichen. So I'm just going to give you my cynical view. And the purpose of a guide is not to educate you about Chichen. The purpose of a guide is to get tips that will uh, go with their salary. So what most of the guides who are very experienced is that they are not only knowledgeable, but they are also great storytellers. They're very imaginative in what they say, and uh, they're also not going to offend anyone. That's part of the key. There's an interesting anthropologist by the name of uh, Quetzil Castaneda, who would be a good guy to have on this program, because he's done a lot of uh, work at Chichen, and, but he also created a framework, and I really kind of buy into it. And that is that guides are presenting a reality of Chichen that is, I mean, there's reality reality, right? Which is what actually happened at Chichen. Who were the Toltecs? What were the periods of occupation? 
And I got to be honest, those answers are somewhat ephemeral. After 100 years of study, we really still don't know a lot of the answers to some of the basic questions at Chichen. And some of, some of my book goes into why we don't have those answers. And in some of those, respe- some of those just respectfully are mistakes done by archaeologists because they weren't asking the questions or they weren't testing a hypothesis to see if, if they could answer you know, who the Toltecs were, as an example. Were they actually a people? And it goes on and on. But there are things we do know, and obsidian blades we know were not used to saw uh, blocks at Chichen, because guess what? There are quarries all over Chichen, and you can see how how they did it, right? So that's pretty good, and and stonework has been going on in Yucatan since time immemorial and goes on today, so none of this is a mystery. Now, there's a very interesting thing going on with guides right now. And unfortunately, you came right at the absolute worst time, I'm sorry to say. So the guide profession, if you go back to uh, when uh, the Carnegie rebuilt and consolidated uh, many of those structures along with the Mexican government beginning in the mid-20s and then going all the way up till the mid-40s, and the Mexican government has continued that work on up until even today. So uh, in those early days, you had uh, individuals who, uh, a very small number of individuals, because tourists were few, and they really knew their stuff because they were interacting with the archaeologists, not only with the Carnegie Institution, but uh, which did the Temple of Warriors, and uh, but also the Mexican government, which did uh, the ball court and did the uh, the giant pyramid, the very famous pyramid, the Temple of Kukulkan. So they they were getting information right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. But at that time, even the horse's mouth was very, let's put it, uh, fanciful. If you go back to kind of the king of Chichen during those early uh, consolidation days of the Carnegie, that would be Sylvanus Morley. And if you go back and read what he wrote in National Geographic, for example, it was very fanciful material. And he put the Maya up on this imaginary pedestal as far as being the superior group of uh, the superior culture. And now we know today that they had certainly things that made them superior, but they were just as warlike. They sacrificed. They did uh, engage a lot in the behaviors and the actions for which uh, the, the Aztecs and popular culture are criticized today. So the guides would kind of take that morally perspective. And for many years, that was kind of what was done at Chichen. So I've read numerous accounts of what guides said. And I would say a good chunk of it was, you know, as accurate as we knew at the time. And a good chunk of it was a a romantic story. You know, one of the examples is who was sacrificed in the Cenote Sagrado. And believe you me, it's a better story if it's a young maiden versus its boys. A, a large number of, uh, of young boys were sacrificed in there, as well as uh, women and other people. The thing is, is that these stories have kind of persisted, and this has become its own mythology at Chichen. Now, the, the gentleman that you got doesn't know any of this. He didn't know it. He didn't know what was true. He didn't know what was what's the current belief. He didn't know what the popular belief is. He didn't know. It sounds like he didn't know anything. And again, no criticism to him because he, if he got good tips, that worked. But one of the problems that they're having right now 
is that uh, guides, you know, came out of a tradition from the 20s and 30s, and it was a small group, and they formed a union, and uh, they worked very closely, and it was pretty much with the Barbachano organization that owned a Maya Land Hotel, which is right in the Chichen archaeological zone, as is they also owned the Hacienda Chichen after the, the Carnegie left and turned that into a hotel. So you had this group of guides, very dedicated people, who were giving continuous tours and knew their stuff. And each one had their own way of telling the story. But nonetheless, it was kind of the popular view of what was going on at Chichen, the belief of Chichen. All right. That went all the way up until and then the, these jobs passed from father to son. And it, it, it and uh, and if you had two sons, sometimes it expanded and more and more people became guides. Well, in the 1990s, the Mexican government wanted to kind of break up this uh, nepotism that was going on and expand the opportunity to other people. And so what they did was they kind of had a cattle call for guides, but there was a pretty rigorous exam that you had to have to be able to qualify and get licenses for a guide. Fantastic. A friend of mine was uh, trying out for it when I was down there at one point and I helped him. I read the sample questions and it was pretty good. I'm just saying it was it was it was pretty good. You you had to know kind of know your stuff. Some of the stuff I I go, well this is just flat out wrong, but you know, it it, it, it wasn't keeping up with the new archaeology that was going on. Okay, not a problem. As some friends of mine became guides at that point, and so then they started guiding at Chichen. Those are the guides that are inside the archaeological zone. Now, you have guides who come in from tourism groups like uh, the, the, you know, the one uh, Carlton that you had, and, and they work for the resorts, but they are still licensed by ENA. And, it, and ENA is the federal authority that oversees archaeological ruins and the patrimony of Mexico. So they still have to be licensed. They have to take the exam until recently. And somebody figured out now, this has been in the news. Is it true or not? Nobody's confirmed this, but I, I believe it. So I'm just going to tell you. Somebody discovered that, hey, somebody being a guide's a good chunk of ch- – it's a great way to make a living. And most of my friends who are guides, these are exceptional positions to have in uh, Yucatan where there's a lot of people who are struggling. So whoever this person is, and supposedly they have a connection to the president of Mexico, they arranged for what we would call in the United States diploma mills. So you could buy credentials to be a guide for 50,000 pesos. That's the story. Now, did you have to take a test? Did you have to go to a school? Did you have to learn anything? You know, according to these news accounts, you don't. You just pay the 50,000 pesos, which today is, uh, what is that, $2,500? That's not a small chunk of change. You pay $2,500, you get to call yourself a guide. Now, where most of these, uh, a lot of these people have now turned up at Chichen is outside the archaeological zone, outside the ticket booth. And there was a uh, pretty popular podcast by a young podcaster who hired one of these guides and had an experience very similar to the one you had, except some of the answers were even crazier as far as what was going on and the lack of knowledge. And they're also offering cut rate tours. So uh, the other thing is, is that the accusation is that some of these tour companies to save money have been hiring these people. And that so the quality of guide that you're getting there's a very good chance it's not very good. 
Now, the concern that I have is the one identical to yours, is that this is a World Heritage Site. This site is very important to Mexico and very important to the state of Yucatan. And why you wouldn't have top quality guides, I don't know. But I will say one of the things that changed, as well as the fact that you have this diploma mill, was that Ina reportedly quit meeting with the guides to update them on the latest archaeology. That used to be something supposedly that was done, was that the archaeologist once a year, once every couple of years would kind of give an update. And that apparently that's all gone. So the quality control for guides is very sad at Chichen. And it's something that has to be corrected, in my opinion. But again, it's their country. You know, if uh, if that's how they want to do it, it, so far, it doesn't seem to be discouraging people from going to Chichen because uh, even now we're still we're in the waning days of COVID. But nonetheless, there's two million people going to show up there this year. And that's uh, almost back to historic levels. You add to that that they increase the ticket price by three or four times. Uh, so now it's I forget what it is, 26 or 30 dollars U.S. to go into the site. You know, I you know, I, I maybe you, maybe you don't need good information. Maybe you know. Anyway, for me, it's it's just a sad thing because I have some friends who are guides and they do a very good job. Yeah, I think on that note we will end the segment. But I think we're gonna you know the next segment we'll continue talking about the the future changes in Chichen Itza. And I was gonna make something about we'll be back in a minute, but I don't I don't know if that's really that funny. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> And we're back. So, Evan, continue on this thread. So, where is what is the direction that Chichen Itza is going as a World Heritage Site and as, as a place of archaeological research and discovery? Well, uh, Chichen is about to be transformed, and I mean totally transformed. And what form it's going to take, the government has not told anyone. And uh, supposedly, there is a master plan out there, and little bits of it are escaping. But Chichen is going to transform because there is this uh, uh, new tourism thing called the Maya Train. And this is a train that will circumnavigate the Yucatan Peninsula. It's currently under construction. So this will be a tourist train to kind of take people from Cancun to Merida with a stop in Chichen. And then it'll go south to Campeche, take you all the way to Palenque, and then cut across the southern part of the peninsula and uh, take you back to the Maya Riviera, Bacalar, or somewhere around there, and then back north to uh, up to Cancun. And that's not quite the route because there's there's places that they're going. But one of the major stops that they're going to have is at Chichen, actually up uh, a few kilometers from Chichen, but there'll be a direct road to Chichen Itza. That's going to bring as as many tourists that are there right now, that's going to make it explode. It's going to go crazy. And the government already knows this. All right. So we have some concerns. First of all, there's a concern for those who are doing archaeology. It's one of those weird things where there's a lot of money spent on archaeology at Chichen, relatively speaking. And But it just seems to get all the resources that could also go to some of the other sites because there are thousands of archaeological sites in Yucatan. You cannot swing a dead cat without hitting one. On the plus side, there is some incredible archaeology going on right now, and we're getting some answers to questions that, quite frankly, have puzzled archaeologists, or to use uh, David Anderson's uh, favorite word, baffled archaeologists 
for <laughs> for <laughs> almost a century. So some of the work that's being done, for example, uh, I recently attended a, uh, a lecture by uh, Vera Teasler, who is down there, and she's the one who actually looks at the uh, skeletal remains of the sacrifice victims and performs, you know, again, you guys are the experts. So I, I, I'll just tell you what the test does. So by looking at the molars of the sacrifice victims, you can tell where they grew up. So one of the questions theoretically is if you look at the folks who were cast into the cenote, sacrificed and then put into the cenote sagrado, or some of the other caches, because there's several, there's like a cache of something like 40 children that was found in a cave, uh, and that's going to be released here pretty soon, information about that. But if you look at the, the victims, so maybe you can answer where the Toltecs came from for, for as an example. So uh, Vera Tiesler's people looked at the molars and to see where they came from, and very few were local. But what region do you suppose these people came from primarily? The answer Egypt. is- <laughs> well, Egypt. Well, that'd be incredible. <laughs> that 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 would explain a lot. No, they came from all over. There was no one area. There's no one area. All throughout Mesoamerica, the victims came or were deposited from there. So it, it, apparently that isn't going to tell us who the Toltecs are, but that answers a question, right? Which is, it shows that Chichen was cosmopolitan, that you had people brought in from all over and either they came there of their own free will or uh, maybe they came as prisoners or were captured in war or whatever. Chichen was a center for people from all over there. And I think that's an exciting find. The other things that are going on is uh, there was some work recently in the uh, Temple of Warriors, which had been rebuilt by the Carnegie Institution back in the late 20s, and then it was turned over to Mexico in 1928. One of the things Chichen is famous for is these rather elaborate mosaic discs, probably, I don't know, a foot and a half across with a, a turquoise, obviously not from Yucatan, that had to be imported in. They're and, obsidian, right? And there's, well, there's obsidian. No, there's, <laughs> oh, are they obsidian? You know what? There might be obsidian in that. But I think okay. it's primarily turquoise. But it's not an obsidian disc that they no. smooth down to. I'm looking through it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe that's what he meant. Okay. So they, they just found another one, which had been uh, implanted into the uh, Temple of the Warriors. And I believe it was up on the top is where they found it. How they found it, I don't know. But Claudia Garcia, uh, who's an archaeologist there, was participating. The other thing is, is that Chichen has these amazing women archaeologists which uh, to me is a pretty huge story. And they've kind of talked about it a little bit, but you see a, a large number of women are doing archaeology there. I mentioned this cache of an, an osario of children's bodies that was recovered uh, north of the Cenote Sagrado. And this was recovered back in the 1960s. So they're about ready to release their study on this. I was in Yucatan 10 years ago and heard the women who were working on this project speak. And so now finally they finished their work. And I, I think that this is going to tell us something. There's a lot of work going on in a section of Chichen called uh, Chichen Viejo, which is south, not not open to tourists currently. They recently committed, completed a massive study of the Temple of Initial Series group, found several uh, burials and uh, also discovered 
I think maybe you might have seen this in the news, this amazing, it's either an altar or it's a table or it's a tablet, but it has Mexicanized figures on it versus Maya figures on it, which are found elsewhere throughout Chichen. But this would put it in Chichen Viejo, which is you know considered by uh, the Maya section, so to speak, of Chichen. But that shows that the Mexican influence extended throughout the city. Again, these are exciting finds, and we're now learning that Chichen was more complex, but also we're learning about kind of connecting it to the history, the oral history that's existed in the area. That's amazing. But now imagine that this site, if you increase the number of people who are coming there, say, I don't know, by fivefold, right? So you have 2 million, now you got 10 million a year coming and visiting. And I don't know if those are the kind of figures. That is just going to be nuts at Chichen. And, you know, how you're going to be able to do archaeology, because I think you have to expand some of the areas that the visitors are going to. That might be, there is some talk of sending them to Chichen Viejo, and there's a lot of productive work still to be done down there. So I, I suspect that's going to interfere with archaeology down there. The other thing is that you have issues with the vendors, which you ran into, Carlton, in the, uh, you know, selling tchotchkes, uh, on the on the sides of the paths, there's a long story which we don't have time for today. But how how they eventually how they ended up doing this, and this is really the only site that I'm aware of where this is done, where you literally have people walking in to the site to to the archaeological zone every day to set up tables. It's very well organized. The uh, heads of tourism will kind of call it a mafia that does this. But uh, these people have a line that goes back to the uh, to the people who originally worked at Chichen during the Carnegie Institution days. So this is kind of uh, th- th- there's kind of this thread that works back that that far. And they they had the right to sell tchotchkes at Chichen and were chased out by the federal government, given new homes. Again, a very complex story, but they invaded about 20 years ago. And at that, at that time, Vincente Fox was the president and he was a man of the people. He was not going to kick them out. And they've been there. And now when I first went there, it seemed to be that there were a lot of people who I didn't consider, didn't seem local to me that were working in that. But today, it looks like almost everybody is local to Piste or one of the local communities around Chichen. So if you kick them out, and that's the scuttlebutt, the scuttlebutt is they're going to kick them out. When the Maya train comes in, that's going to displace a lot of people who are right now have their economic, uh, you know, the economy of their family rests upon what they sell at Chichen. All right. So there is that. The guide situation we talked about, that's got to get fixed. And but there but I will tell you, there is literally crickets from the Mexican government about making changes with regards to the guides. So we'll see what happens. The bigger question of all is ownership of the property, which brings us back to the original issue. So historically, Edward Thompson owned Chichen. The Mexican government seized it in 1926. In 1944, the Mexican Supreme Court ruled Thompson had broken no laws. And so they returned the property to Thompson's heirs. Thompson's heirs at that time had struck a deal with a uh, tourism pioneer by the name of Get this, Fernando Barbachano Peon, who we talked about before. This is the father of the man I became friends with. And the deal was is that uh, Fernando Barbachano Peon would bankroll the lawsuit to keep the property in the Supreme Court. And in exchange for that, if he was successful, they would sell him Chichen for 10,000 U.S. dollars. 
When the case was adjudicated in Thompson's favor, Thompson by that time was dead. The Thompson family sold Chichen to the Barbachanos. And so, and the Barbachanos used Chichen in 1944. They were already there with the Maya Land Resort many years later, but now they had control of the entire property. The Barbachanos parlayed that into a tourism empire, really built tourism in through the entire Yucatan Peninsula as a result. When I got to know Don Fernando, Don Fernando talked a lot about what he did to protect the property. And I think what's kind of interesting is uh, Barbachano Peon, his father, is kind of the gentleman who created the idea of an archaeological zone. Now, he was doing this for self-serving purposes purposes because he didn't want the, the land nationalized to be given as ejidos. This is uh, property that's given to the campesinos, to the people who live in the villages, so that they have a place to raise their milpa, etc. So there was some threat of that at Shichen, so he came up with this idea of a quote, archaeological zone, and it protected it. Okay. In uh, 2000, I think it was 2010, 2012, I forget, the main archaeological zone got sold to the state of Yucatan. And that was the part that had been owned by Don Fernando Barbachano Gomez Rule, my friend. So the, the Barbachano family sold it to the state of Yucatan because at that time there was the, the, the federal government was talking about taking it by eminent domain. Uh, expropriating it. And that was causing no end of uh, legal challenges. The section that is Chichen Viejo to the south was sold a few years ago by uh, Doña Carmen Barbachano y Gomez Rule, Don Fernando's sister. She owned it. She sold that to the federal government, to Ina, and uh, for a, a rather insane amount of money. The third major parcel, by the way, the family still keeps the Hacienda Chichen, which was which she had. The third parcel is the one that is the one that's in controversy right now. That's where the Maya Land Resort is, and that goes uh, a little bit south and then also to the east from the main archaeological zone. That property is owned by Don Fernando Barbachano Herrera. And he is the son of Don Fernando Parbachano <laughs> Gomez Rule. You can see that they like that name, Fernando. During COVID, he sold it. He got went into agreement and sold it to a developer in uh, on the uh, Maya Riviera. Somebody who uh, was famous for getting into a snit with Donald Trump over the Miss Universe pageant, and that resulted in a massive lawsuit. Uh, this is a businessman who he, he fits in well in Cancun, Playa del Carmen. So uh, according to him, and there's an argument over this property, there's a big fight in the courts right now over it. But according to him, Don Fernando agreed to sell the property. and But part of the agreement is that the permits would be, getting, would be obtained for a 400-unit hotel to replace the Maya Land Resort. Now, if you go on Google Maps, you can see the Maya Land Resort. And it's 40 rooms, and it's two levels at its highest point. It's a very tasteful. It's got bungalows. It's very nice. Now imagine a hotel from Cancun put on the property overlooking Chichen in the archaeological zone. Yeah, that's what I was expecting. Like when I saw those hotels, I was like, huh, those are kind of humble. I thought there was going to be like a huge resort, like a golf course somewhere. I thought it was going to be like a big resort space when I had been driving up. It's going to be not for lack of trying that that doesn't exist, but it will, but it will exist. Uh, 
So what we're seeing right now is there's going to be massive development in the area. You know, the hope is, you know, it'll be like a little mini uh, Playa del Carmen or whatever. I, I mean, there's a plan to build a beach resort at Chichen. So how do you build a beach resort inland? Well, you build a beach and you build Anyway, it's just nuts. It's absolutely Wait, they're going to build a beach? That's the plan. Again, this is a plan that was released many, many years ago and was uh, because there was a uh, the governor at the time talked about the Disneyfication of Chichen. So uh, look, Chichen is going to change and you can't argue that it's going to bring jobs for a lot of people, a lot of money to Mexico. And, you know, Chichen was, even from the beginning, when uh, Morley worked there, that time Alfred Kidder was running the Carnegie, and he said, this is going to be a showpiece of tourism, Chichen was, the reconstruction that they did. And it proved to be absolutely correct. So Chichen, as we know it, is going to change. I think that there are things that they can do uh, to make it a good positive change uh, as much as one possibly can. But, and again, it's their country, they can do what they want, but it's going to make me sad if I see a 400 unit hotel overlooking the uh, Caracol, the so-called Maya Observatory with the uh, glass obsidian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> obsidian disc, yeah, so you don't burn your eyes out so you can right. track the sun, yeah. So, so that's where we're going and uh, it's all going to change and it's going to change very soon. Well, if the well, podcast is still running in a few years, maybe we'll book one of those rooms and have you back on, fly you out, and we can record an episode from the from the roof overlooking the everything and reflect on the past couple of years of development over my ties and pina coladas. Okay, I, I, two things: if the podcast doesn't last that long, that's okay. If the if the if the, if the hotel doesn't get built, that's really really okay. So this is a big caveat that we, if we are going to drink Mai Tais and stuff like that. You know, we'll go over to the Hacienda <laughs> Chichen, which is one of my favorite places on earth. And everybody should uh, stay overnight there. It's uh, it's still in the Barbachano family and it's still run. And I, I adore that place. So let's have let's have a cocktail on uh, on the veranda and call it a day. Sounds good. Well, on that note, Evan, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. What are a couple sources, these books, articles, videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in the history of Chichen Itza? So my my personal library is something like 200 volumes, which touch on Chichen. And I, it's just too many. I, you know, it's like picking children, even though I didn't write them. So, But I did come up with three books that changed my life and really changed my perspective and uh, gave me a new insight so that I could write this book. And and, you know, the first one is obviously John Lloyd Stevens' Incidents of Travel in Yucatan, uh, written in 18 or published in 1843. It's the book that introduced Chichen to 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 the world. Stevens went down there with Catherwood, uh, Frederick Catherwood, and with uh, Samuel Cabot. Uh, interestingly enough, I happen to own a cane that was owned by Samuel Cabot. It's in my office. I should have had it here so I could show it to you. But, <laughs> you know, he's a he was a New England guy. Anyway, that book brought Chichen to the world and beautiful illustrations. A book that really explained to me that I wasn't crazy about some of the stuff I found when I was down there that actually ran contrary to what some of the archaeologists were telling me even. A book uh, by Paul Sullivan, former uh, dean at Yale, called Unfinished Conversations, Mayas and Foreigners Between the Two Wars. 
Uh, I've gotten to know Paul, an amazing guy. Uh, I send any Maya that I have, I send to him and he helps me translate it because uh, my Maya is limited to Gosh, which means let's go. And finally, I have Walter Taylor's treatise, The Study of Archaeology, which took all the work that the Carnegie did, uh, Carnegie Institution, and showed that it was almost a waste of time. That's kind of my interpretation of it. But it shows that you can spend hundreds of thousands on archaeology and still not get the answers that you're looking for. Very groundbreaking. And uh, one of Walter Taylor's students, Willie Folan, who went on to Campeche and do amazing work at Colic Mool, was a good friend of mine. He just recently passed. That's a lot. That's a big loss. And you know what? Can I add one more? Do we have time? Yeah, absolutely. No. What do you got? What's you got? What else you got? I, I hate this guy. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I hate this guy because he. If, if I could have written this book, I would have written this book. And this is actually the book I'm working on right now. But this guy does it so well. This is uh, our trip Evans. He's not an archaeologist. He's, he's a writer, uh, but he's an academic. It's called Romancing the Maya, Mexican Antiquity in the American Imagination, 1820 to 1915. So if you don't get my book, which, by the way, is called uh, The Man Who Owned a Wonder of the World. If you don't get my book, get trip our trip Evans, because it's a delightful read and amazing. Absolutely amazing. Wished I'd written it. Absolutely. And we will have all those titles in the episode description, as well as both books that Evan has written for those that are interested in tonight's topic. And if you're into, you know, true crime and Cape Cod. So uh, both those titles down below for our listeners to follow up with. Yeah. And where can people find, because this is a very social media driven world these days, where can people find you on social media? I, I you know, I'm, I'm at at American Egypt, which actually was the original title for my book, but it didn't test well. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> After I already had the Twitter handle. Thank you. So at American Egypt, one word. And uh, all I tweet about is Chichen. Sorry. No, no outrage, nothing. Just Chichen, twenty-four hours a day. Oh, and I and I like uh, David Anderson's tweets. So that's about it. Awesome. And so, because this is a life in ruins, we usually have to ask this really cheesy question, and we always try to tailor it to our guests. So, like, if you were given the chance again, would you still choose to study the history of the people who lived in? And owned ruins. One of the things I'm keenly interested in is indigenous history. And the new project that I'm working on involves uh, indigenous history throughout the United States, specifically contacts between uh, Native Americans and white settlers. That's a new project that uh, for unfortunately COVID forced me to start uh, because I couldn't get into uh, any archives. So that's really my interest. And I, I don't care if it's the Maya. I don't care if it's the uh, uh, Northern Paiute from where I come from originally, which is the state of Oregon. Uh, I'm fascinated in those lives and in how those lives survive today. Excellent. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Evan Albright. You can find him on Twitter at American Egypt. You'll find that handle in the episode description. And please be sure to rate and review the podcast and provide us with any feedback, whichever podcasting platform you're using to listen to our show. If you rate and review the podcast and email us with a snapshot of your review, we will send you a sticker. 
we're still waiting on more people. We have like a bunch of reviews that we have stickers for. So please reach out to us. And additionally, if you're listening to our show on the All Shows feed, please consider subscribing and following the Life in Ruins podcast individually. That helps us grow our show and obtain sponsors and uh, procure advertisements to help keep our show running. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Well, everybody, it is your favorite time. We have gotten through the outro and it's uh, time for Connor's witty dad joke. So, Connor, what do you have for me and Evan this evening? Oh, God. Wait, did I already do my deja vu joke? Thank you, Connor. As always, it's a pleasure. I look forward to this every week. Oh, thank that, you, guys. That was that was that was priceless. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we are out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States. Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.